everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Aubrey will touch on it throughout the day, but, you know, our prayers and our thoughts and our, our attention continues to be on what's going on over in the Ukraine. Um, praying that that a lot of the predictions don't come true, that that it's about to get worse before it gets better. But uh, the Ukraine was one of the big talking points at the State of the Union address last night. President Biden's State of the Union address. Let me begin just by asking you, are you somebody who watches the State of the Union address? Yes, I I watch the State of the Union address. Um, and I, I last night I watched most of it. I started to get a little bit sleepy after a while <laughs> and I thought, OK, I get it. And I went to bed, to be honest. But yeah. yes, I uh, just in the past few years, I've gotten more interested in watching the State of the Union address. Or in the years past, I've been like, I'll read about it the next morning. It's fine. Yeah, a couple big things last night at the State of the Union address. No masks. No masks. Uh, that, that felt different to even watch as a viewer. Like, oh, they have faces. They oh, have this faces. is weird. Oh, that's what their faces look like. You know, and, and President Biden touted a lot of what they've done for the coronavirus. And uh, you either agreed with them or you didn't. As is going to be the common theme here. Yes, accurate. Uh, a heavy um, focus on the Ukraine, mm-hmm. uh, but not a ton of detail about what is coming or mm-hmm. what are we going to do. A lot of stuff about the economy, a lot of stuff about unity. Uh, I would argue that both parties in there have done a lot to cause the disunity. Fair. That Very it feels fair. weird to have them talk about unity. But, Aubrey, can I tell you my biggest takeaway last night, I did watch some of it. Okay. I will say I watched some of it. I saw the highlights this morning. Uh, but y- let me give you my biggest takeaway. And my biggest takeaway, it had nothing to do with the speech itself. Okay. It had nothing to do with policy. Okay. It had nothing to do with who was whose guest or whatever else it was. All right, here it is. Let's see if this makes sense. Watching the State of the Union, my biggest takeaway is that we are a such a not serious society. Oh, not serious. Unpack that for me, Brian. What do you mean? I, I think it's in relation to what we're watching going on in the Ukraine and all of this. Uh, but here's what gets me. And it happens every time when there's a Republican president giving it when there's a Democrat yeah. president. Yeah. I, this is this is a a bipartisan thing that I'm about to say here. These are the leaders of our country. Yes. These are the people that we are supposed to look to. The president, the vice president, the senators, the congressmen, the congresswomen, whatever else. Yes. And the whole night has to do with this. Who stood up to clap? (laughs) I'm going to clap for that. And then I'm going to look to my right and see if they stood up. Though they didn't stand up, I'm going to clap harder. Oh, Nancy Pelosi is like in her seat. Like, I'm going to jump. Oh, I shouldn't go. Chuck Schumer. She was very smiley. Yeah. It's almost like it it feels like this. You and I say this all the time. It feels like the second grade where, oh, did, did they clap? They didn't clap. Why didn't they clap? Yeah, oh, they didn't I do this. See, and then I you see. add on top of it just the buffoon uh, Republican <laughs> Congresswomen who were like literally taunting. And yeah, making, that was ridiculous. Like that's just craziness yeah. and disrespectful. But all of it, I almost feel like you should. It would be more enjoyable to watch the State of the Union on mute and just watch the people's pop reactions. It up, sitting down, <laughs> popping up, scowl face. Yes. Oh, uh, let's yes. look at what this person does. Let's look at what this person pause for standing up, sitting down, and it feel it. it I think last night it hit me for the first time the ridiculous nature mm. of it. Like if I wasn't an American, yeah. And I didn't know of the State of the Union. And somebody told me, hey, you got to watch this tonight. Our president is going to get up 
for the one time a year gets up to this to talk about the state of the union. How yeah. are we doing? I'd be like, man, first of all, everybody probably watches this. Right. But two, that's got to be just a serious deal. Like, yeah. This has to have some like some just gravity to us. Yeah. There's a war going on yeah. over the other side yeah. of the country. We have inflation yeah. here. We have yeah. this. And instead, it's just buffoonery. And it's like it, it feels like elementary school. I'm going to bounce saying. up. I'm going to bounce up. And here's my problem, Aubrey. And this is why I want to talk about this. I have been consistent on this message since we started this show. I believe the behavior of the leaders trickles down and and implants itself mm. into the DNA of the organization. Interesting. And in this case, the organization, if you will, is the country. Interesting. So do you want to know why we have an unserious country? Mm. Do you want to know why we can't have civil conversations? Yeah, because our leaders can't. Do you want to know why we can't focus on what's important versus what's trivial? Yeah. Because our leaders are bouncing up and down, clapping and looking at each other and mocking each other and then getting on TV to talk about that person and that person. Can't even get through one night. Mm. I I can't. Tell me your thoughts. You feel very passionate about this, Brian. I like seeing you like this. So I... Um, I like some of the pomp and circumstance, sure. especially at the beginning, uh, being introduced, walking in. I like some of the initial clapping and standing because there aren't a lot of places in American society, society where we do sort of those more formal things. So I enjoy that for a bit. But then I, I agree with you, Brian, that after a while it do, it becomes a little it, it becomes distracting, I suppose, from the main point, which is. What is the leader of our nation saying about the state of the world and mm-hmm. our nation right now? And especially after the past two years we've had, there there was missing an air of gravitas, I think, mm-hmm. where and it, it did feel like things were being taken flippantly, childishly. The taunting, especially the you're right, the waiting to see who clapped and who didn't clap and almost like like you said, kind of cafeteria childish gossip like who's doing what when oh it's uh. every time too and it, it does seem like there needs to be an alternative though and so i don't know if the alternative is like i've got the alternative okay, for you let's hear it because i don't know what it is i've I got hear the it. alternative for you and this will never happen part of the part of the thing is it's supposed to be the president speaking to the congress and giving the state of the union but really what it is is the president talking to the nation yeah right yeah here's what we do okay nobody in the audience Interesting. Let's not have the Congress. I can't watch it without being distracted. You're right. Let's You're totally get the, right. Both sides of the hall, of the chamber. Let's get them out. Okay. Not going to be there. They can all be re- watching wherever they watch. Yep. And they can come on the TV later and get and just rip it or yeah. praise it or this. Yeah. And that. How about the president just gets up same place because it still has this solemn look like there's still some importance to where that is. Yeah. But how about this not be like punditry? How about this not be like the football game where it ends and we immediately go to the postgame show and talk about how about we just let the president, whether he or she is a Republican or a Democrat. Yeah. How about we just let them get up? Say give a saying, speech. Yeah. We have a TV now. The congressman and congresswoman can watch it on TV. Right. How about they just do that? Right. And then afterwards, the Republicans can give their rebuttal. The Democrats can yeah. talk about this. The pundits yeah. can talk about this. Yeah. I find it so incredibly not just distracting, but disrespectful the way it's set up now. And I thought that when President Trump did it, I think that when yep. you know when Obama did it, yep. I thought that when President Bush, this yep. is not a Republican or a Democrat thing, yep. but it just plays into the unseriousness of who we are. I would say if you're going to do it the way we've been doing it, I'm done. I'm not going to yeah, watch it anymore. I, I think that's, there's actually something to that, Brian. It reminds me a little bit. I mean, this is I know it's a totally different organization. OK, mm-hmm. 
But, um, you know, the queen who does her Christmas speech every year, it's like the entire, again, a different organization and a different purpose. But the entire nation tunes in to hear Queen Elizabeth read or say her speech. And it's like this beautiful moment in the nation. Whether or not you agree or disagree with what she said is not the point. The point is, like, everyone's coming together to hear a word from their queen. That's sort of what you're calling for. What if everyone came together to hear a word from our leader let that stand That's alone right. and right. then let the political pundits or the, the different leaders and the different you know houses on their own time or in a different platform share what they think about it. There's something to that, Brian. Yep. yep. I guess I'd sum it up this way. You should be president. I watch the State of the Union and it leaves me embarrassed for our country. Wow. It really does. It, and, it, it, and it gives some clarity to me as to this is why. We are an unserious country because we are led by unserious people. And I think that needs to change. And I think we need to have some serious talks about it. Uh, but I'm, I know that's not going to happen. Yeah. Anyway, we're uh, next, we're going to be joined by Jake Medor. He's the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, author of an older book, Aubrey, which we love, called In Search of the Common Good. We're like, hey, you found Look it. We're right that. here. Look but, at that. But he's also written a new book called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the end of the world. We're going to talk to Jake Medor next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, we are thrilled to be joined by the editor-in-chief of Mere Orthodoxy, also the author of a book that I feel like you and I need to read. Absolutely. I was just thinking that. Called In Search of the Common Good. So we're all for that. Great name. But he's also got a new book out called What Are Christians For? Life Together at the End of the World. His name is Jake Medor. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's so good to have you with us. Hey, before we talk about the book, and again, congrats on it. It looks great. Uh, But before we talk about the book, why don't you just introduce yourself, help our audience get to know you a little bit better? Yeah. um, I'm, as you said, I'm the editor-in-chief at Miro. I've been doing that for, goodness, seven years now. Um, I'm married to my wife, Joey. We have four kids. Mm -hmm. Our oldest is nine, youngest is two, and I live in my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. Awesome. Nice. Very cool. Um, And so why don't you just dive right in and tell us a little bit about the book, What Are Christians For? I'm I'm very intrigued by the subtitle, Jake, Life Together at the End of the World. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So the idea is that the world that a lot of us have known for a long time in the West, in the U.S., um, seems to be changing and perhaps just at an end and something new is emerging. Mm. Um, an Australian pastor I've learned a lot from named Mark Sayers calls this a gray zone. And so when you're in the gray zone, everything is foggy and you're not really sure what's coming next. And so this was my attempt to kind of talk about, well, what should Christians be about in this new world that's emerging where the Cold War is kind of back on now? Yeah, and yeah. We've redefined marriage and we have all of these crazy political things going on. And we have the breakdown of trust that's resulted from COVID. Um, The way we work is changing. There's so many things that are kind of in upheaval right now. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It creates a lot of uncertainty about what we should be doing. Yeah, and and as I think about that new world that you're talking about, 
Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, Aubrey and I talk about stories all the time of, you know, how are Christians responding to what's going on? And it feels like the, the church is just trying to fight everything right now. We're trying to push back. How would you suggest that we start to live within, like you said, this kind of new reality? What, what, are, what should we as Christians, what should our posture be right now? Um, I mean, in one sense, the demand on us is the same as it always is. We're mm-hmm. called to love God and love our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things that can easily get lost when everything gets reduced down to culture war um, is that the people that we are interacting with at our job, that we bump into at the coffee shop, the people who make media that we don't like, mm-hmm. that make them mad, all of these are human beings made in the divine image. Yeah. They have fears and anxieties and insecurities and doubts, just like you do. Um, And particularly in a moment like this, the need for care and attentiveness is, if anything, higher Mm -hmm. than I would say it has been in the past. And yet, because of the way we're kind of schooled in our institutions and our day-to-day life to not trust each other, to assume the worst, to jump Mm -hmm. to conclusions. Um, It's harder for us to give that kind of care. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we're dealing with something. So here in Lincoln right now, we have a fairness ordinance being debated that would create some real um, free speech problems for Christians. Mm. Like I've read the ordinance. It really would. Wow. Um, But the way my pastor talked about it is he said, look, we're going to take a position on this issue. We're probably going to be called hateful because of it. Mm. If we are living as Christians should be, then the people who know us are going to know that that's not true. Mm. And even the people that are calling us that, if they know that, if they also like know us well, in the back of their minds, they're going to know it's not true. Mm. So we can't be responsible for how people respond to us or what mm. they call us, but we can be responsible for how we treat every person we meet who mm. is made in God's image mm. and therefore calls forth a certain kind of deference and respect from us and how we relate to them. Mm. That's that's a good word for all of us, Jake, especially for right now. Thanks for that. Thanks. <laughs> send, uh, send your thanks to your pastor for us, <laughs> yes, Jake. Yes. Um, <laughs> Jake, I, I, I know that one of your approaches to this book is is a profoundly pro-life Christian stance, but not in the maybe myopic way that we think about being pro-life, but something bigger than that. You're talking about givenness and goodness and, and God's plan for God's big dream for his created world. And, uh, you know, I, I guess the question they want to ask you is just can you unpack some of that for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the argument that I want to make in the book is that much of the way we live today is just profoundly set against life. Mm. And so we can and should advocate for laws that protect the unborn. Um, We need to do other things as well, because we live in ways, Christians and non-Christians, that undermine life, that weaken life, that hurt life. And so, like, in one chapter of the book, I talk about kind of our environmental witness, I guess you could say. Um, And so one question I ask is, when you are thinking about your day, when you are thinking about your relationship to the natural world, even as something as small as your backyard, um, what are you willing to be obstructed by? Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things that you see a lot in how we relate to the earth is that unless something has kind of been designated as being sufficiently scenic or beautiful and therefore needing to be protected as a park, 
we tend to relate to the land as this kind of disposable resource. And so we don't really think very much of blowing a top off of a mountain in order to get cheap energy. Um, And what I'm wanting to say is that should tell us something about what we value. Um, Mm. The things that we're willing to go around that we're willing to let obstruct us versus the things that we feel comfortable just running over. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. I want to go back to the story you told about your pastor and what he said to your church, um, because I think it's so important and so powerful. So he said, you know, we're going to stand up, we're going to have an opinion or we're going to stand up for this, but people will know by how we treat them and how we live that we're not what they're going to brand us to be. What does that even look like? So you know, what are the attributes? Let me ask you this. What are the attributes of the church that would cause people to go, you know what? I disagree, but they love so well, or they're so neighborly or whatever else it might be. How do we actually live that out? Yeah, I've heard Keller use the idea that if your church disappeared from the city, mm-hmm. people might not notice. They might be glad or <laughs> yes. they mm-hmm. might be sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and you should ask yourself which of those it would be and why. Um So I guess I can just say with Zion, where I attend here in Lincoln, I'm at Zion PCA. Um, We have a food net distribution ministry that we do every week. um, And we kept going through the pandemic. Mm. Um, We had volunteers outside in very cold weather last winter to make food available to people in our neighborhood. And we um, generally try to have a posture of being open and engaged with Mm. our city rather than being against it. So my pastor actually has a radio show on Saturday mornings and he just talks to anybody from the city who's up to various things serving the city of Lincoln and wants to hear about what they're doing and why they're doing it and how it's serving the city. So I think those postures help build trust such that when you do hit a testing point in the relationship, which you will, because, like we're Christians and that puts us in a certain position <laughs> yeah. to a lot of prevailing cultural forces. Um, but hopefully when you hit those points, you have the relational capital, so to speak, that you can kind of draw on those funds and people can recognize who you are and who you're not. That's mm-hmm. right. That's a good. really good word. Jake good. Midor again is the editor in chief of mere orthodoxy and the author of a new book called what are Christians for life together at the end of the world. You can learn more about Jake and his books at jakemedor.com. Also check out his writing at mereorthodoxy.com. And as always, you can connect with him on Twitter at Jake underscore Medor. That's M-E-A-D-O-R, Jake underscore Medor. Jake, this is wonderful, man. Thanks so much for spending some time with us and congrats on the book. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is fun. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. All right, Aubrey, you and I are both two non-denominational church planters, right? Yes, we definitely are. There is some beauty to that, but sometimes uh, I do miss... Or not miss, I was never a part of it, but sometimes I do have some jealousy towards people who are in longer traditions. In like high church traditions. People who have traditions more than 12 years, or in your case, (laughs) six years, or whatever. Like when they talk about the decades, or the centuries, or even more than that, as opposed to the year, right? And one of those places you can feel that is around more high church, more liturgical things like 
Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. So today is Ash Wednesday. Yes. Uh, and and my church has a thing where we we've done it, we've not done it, we've done it, we've not done it. Right? It's a typical evangelical non denominational thing. Yes. Uh, my guess is your church is much the same way. But yep. then sometimes I feel when these things come around, going, I kind of wish that I was uh, a part of something that just embraced Ash Wednesday completely. I know. Uh, and then other times I'm good not. Yeah. You know. And yeah. so. Let's give some people the background because you might be driving around going, yeah, I did see some people mm-hmm. with something on their forehead mm-hmm. today because Ash Wednesday kicks off Lent. Yes. And now all you know about Lent is, I don't know, my best friend's not eating meat or not right. doing this or not doing that. <laughs> right, so right. let's talk about Ash Wednesday. What, what's your understanding of Ash Wednesday? Well, again, the one who wrote Lament book. I did write a book on Lament, but I did not write a book on Lent. Uh, I did write a Bible study that you can find right now on Tyndale.com, though, about Lent and lament. Um, So Ash Wednesday, like Brian just said, is the beginning of Lent, a time to symbolize repentance, a time to symbolize death, a time Mm -hmm. to remember that we are but ash. And then ultimately, this is where the non-denominational evangelicals are really good. Ultimately, we're leading to Easter, leading to the resurrection. So all of it is sort of a time of darkness, a time of death in a sense in order to prepare for the resurrection day of jesus christ yeah it's it's all about repentance right it's all about this understanding uh of our sin uh ash wednesday is meant to be heavy yes this is where i always struggled again as a good (laughs) non-denominational evangelical we we a couple times i'd say half of our years we uh held an ash wednesday service did the ashes all of this stuff but I always had communion too. Oh, and yeah. People are like, that's cheating. You're not you're supposed like, to do I don't that. Know. I, I want to. <laughs> like, because I, I never wanted to leave people just. But the point of Ash Wednesday is to leave them, it is to leave people in the heaviness yes, and, and an acknowledgement of their own sin. Yes. Uh, as you said, it, it is important for many reasons, one of which is it marks the start of the Lenten period leading up to Easter. Uh, again, and the resurrection of Jesus. I'm reading from an article here. It reminds us the ashes symbolize both death and repentance. During this uh, period, Christians show repentance and mourning for their sins uh, because they believe that Christ died for them. And so, you know, remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return is kind of uh, what you will hear. And, you know, as the person whose book was number one in Christian death on Amazon. It was, yes. uh, Why is this posture, whether you take ashes or not, whether it's today or not, why is this posture of repentance, of feeling the heaviness of a lot of people will be like, hey, he rose from the dead. Let's forget talking about sin. Quit talking about sin. Stop doing about sin. Why is, especially leading into Easter, mm-hmm. uh, the but just in general, the acknowledgement, mm-hmm. the heaviness, the recognition mm-hmm. of our own sinfulness, why is that so essential to our faith? Yeah, I mean, I understand, of course, the impulse to want to jump to the to the resurrection, to the victory. But we, you know, we can't know the, the intensity of the resurrection of Jesus and the victory of Jesus until we understand the weight of our sin that he took on himself on the cross and the weight of the world's suffering. Like when, Mm. when, when theologians talk about Jesus taking on sin on himself on the cross, they're talking about our personal sin, but also like cosmic sin, capital Mm. S sin. The Lord took evil. The Lord took pain. The Lord took the world's suffering. The the Lord took the power of evil structures, the principalities that are at work 
and our personal sin on himself on the cross. Mm. And so when we pause just a moment, and it's really 40 days, right, to allow ourselves to consider the weight of our sin and the weight of the world's suffering, the reality of evil in this world, that makes, when we get to Easter Sunday, the resurrection Mm -hmm. that much brighter, Mm -hmm. that much bigger, that much more of something that we're willing to like bow down and give our lives for, right? Yeah, yeah. I've often said this to our church, that to understand the, the, the depth, the enormity of the good news, you need to understand the depth of the bad news in the Bible. Like That's what, good, Brian. What makes the good news good news is an understanding of the bad news, and that is our sin and judgment and death yeah. and loss. And uh, that is what Ash Wednesday is supposed to do. And so even if you are not of the um, the, the church background that, that, that recognizes Ash Wednesday or celebrates mm-hmm, Ash Wednesday, mm-hmm. celebrate might be a weird word, but... Um, you still need to take time regularly to go, okay, let me think about my own sinfulness. And that could be heavy, yeah. uh, but that it, that's important yeah. uh, because then it leads us to a recognition of the grace of God in, in our lives through Jesus Christ. But Aubrey, this also kicks off Lent uh, and it marks the start of Lent. And Lent is a six-week period of fasting or self-sacrifice of prayer observed by Christians each year to prepare for the celebration of Easter. Okay, that's what Lent is if you did not also grow up in that in that tradition. It's celebrated over 46 days, including 40 days of fasting and six Sundays on which fasting is not practiced. We all know the, biblically the importance of 40 days. Why is, again, Aubrey, even if you don't normally celebrate Lent, why is the idea of fasting, the idea of giving something up, mm. right? Lent, you'll often see people, hey, you're not going to see me on Twitter for the next 40 right, days. Right. Hey, you're not going to see this or not going to eat meat or not going to eat chocolate or drink coffee or whatever else it might be. Why is fasting in general, this kind of uh, denying ourselves of something, why is that important in the Christian tradition, whether it be Lent or not? Yeah, I mean, again, you're hearing this from an evangelical, non-denominational <laughs> Christian who did not grow up practicing, right. like, giving up anything for Lent. So, I, so you know, I, I feel like I'm coming at this at, as a total novice, although I do try to give up something for Lent every year now. But um, I, I believe that part of it is one... Um, you're joining in Christ's own sufferings, like by choosing to deny yourself of something you're in, in Mm -hmm. that way, um, joining in the suffering of Christ who literally gave up his life. Um, also when we talk about fasting, um, fasting is not something to like earn God's attention or favor, but it's to increase our intimacy with God. Right. So that let's say you fast from social media as Mm -hmm. a lot of people do Mm -hmm. for Lent. When you have that instinct to go grab your phone, instead, that's a moment you're supposed to remind your heart to go to God. So all of this is like habits, spiritual disciplines, formation to point you to the person of Jesus, to the work of Jesus. And all of it, again, is so like Easter comes and you can pick up your phone again. You're not necessarily even concerned about your phone. Your phone has been put in its proper place Mm. because Jesus is back at the center. Yes, prioritizing. There becomes this prioritizing uh, and it prepares us for Easter. I do always appreciate that about the Lenten season because, uh, I, you know, sometimes like Christmas, you could just end up, all right, let's go. It's Christmas. Yeah. Or, hey, it's Easter. And I'll say, like, wait, yeah. w- when did that just come upon us? And Lent reminds us. And so uh, whether you're going to an Ash Wednesday service or whether you're giving something up, let us encourage you. What are you going to do to prepare for the celebration that is Easter here in 46 days mm-hmm, or whatever else mm-hmm. it might be. Good, uh, what can be different this year that will have you prepared uh, 
uh, and ready to go. And so we look forward to it. Lent, well, let's let's uh, kind of as a show, we'll move forward towards Easter and the great celebration that it is. Amen. All right. Coming up next, we're going to ask this question. Has evangelicalism lost its mind? And discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today on this Ash Wednesday. Kind of teased this next part with this question earlier. Has evangelicalism lost its mind? Wow. And I think if you've heard us enough to know, you go, you know, we both love being called evangelicals. Absolutely. We are... That we we wear we are that. rooted in evangelicalism, and we are not ones who are like trying to deny that yeah. in the past or the present or the future, right? And we've lost our minds, and we've lost our minds. It feels like, and I know you and I are really in the middle of it, doing a radio show and being pastors. Yes. So sometimes what we feel, I think, is different than like the normal like people Good out point. there going. Not what, are you what are you about? talking about? Yeah. But with that said, I think the pandemic and politics and tribalism, I think that's where we've lost our mind. Yeah. If I had to describe where we've lost our minds, I think the increase in tribalism underneath the banner of Christian. Like it used to be like yes. I'm either a Christian or I'm trying to reach the non-Christians, yeah. right? Like those were our our dichotomy. Yeah. Now it feels like I'm a Christian who believes this, 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 then not even just theological, but political, yeah. pandemic, whatever. Yes. I believe this is. And if you are a Christian who doesn't believe that, we're on opposite sides. We are not on the same team. We are not brothers. Yeah. When, when I think about have we lost our minds, it's around that topic where I think I worry the most and I think we have lost our minds. I, I do think we've lost our minds and we've um, even that phrase like, I, this is my tribe. This is my tribe. Even mm-hmm. that we have tribes within Christianity. I understand there have always been differences of opinion about things that were not essential to the faith. Like, uh, But over the past few years, we would all say the divide is increasingly crazy mm-hmm. um, where it just doesn't even it's like, is there no brotherly sisterly love anymore? Is yeah. there no way to. To honor those you disagree with, is there no room for nuance? Is there no room for civility like we talk about a lot in discourse? Is there no room for public discourse that's that's kind and polite while disagreeing? Like, it just feels like we are now totally separate to the point where I'm wondering. I mean, you you see ex-evangelicals going one way, evangelicals going another. Is there going to be like a whole new denomination mm. that's born in some of this, maybe. I, I mean, it's it, wild, Brian. I, I don't think a new movement or denomination. I think of it more like um, kind of tentacles coming off, right? Like mm-hmm. the, you've got kind of this core evangelical, whatever that word means now. Yeah. And you've got this kind of offshoot and this kind. They're still loosely connected, mm-hmm. but they're now kind of in different areas. Like we feel more different, yeah. right? Like. Uh, and I, I think that tribalism is worrisome. Mm. And the question is, what do we do about it? Right. And there was right. recently a, a Russell Morris got a podcast and he had on David Brooks. David Brooks is uh, a great thinker, a great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he spoke on this a little bit. So I'd like you to hear what David Brooks had to say. I think about a statement you made. I think it was in The Social Animal uh, years ago where you said something along the lines of the adult personality, including political views, is forever defined by one's natural enemies in high school. Yeah, I stole and, that from it, Tom Wolf. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly does seem to be the case that that a great deal of this is about um, 
resentment toward uh, other people for either taking something away for you, from you or even more so not respecting you, uh, that, that, that there's not a sense of uh, dignity afforded. I think that's the big one. Um, you know, the, the, Tom Wolf had this theory of the high school, the, the theory of the high school opposite, that if you're the, the drama kid, you know you hate the football player and vice versa. And so, you know, you, we fit, form these cliques in high school. If, any, if you saw Breakfast Club, that movie mm-hmm. that years and years ago, that, that's sort of American politics right now. Maybe we all need to get suspended together so we for, are forced to fit in the same room. Um, but I do think it's that that sense of you don't see me. You, you know, this is frankly what my next book is about, that, that somehow there's an epidemic of blindness in this culture that of rural people feeling not seen by coastal people, blacks feeling that their daily experience is not understood by whites, Republicans and Democrats looking at each other in blind incomprehension. And somehow we're less good at being able to look across difference and say, I sort of get where you're coming from. Uh, I sort of see what you're going through. And if we could achieve that level of, of social skill, social connection, that would solve a lot of this. And I've certainly found that, you know, occasionally I'll get screamed at by left or right in public. And if I just say, want to get a beer, it, it totally transformed the conversation because they feel with some justification that no one sees them. They're invisible. And that's just a moral wound that's hard to overcome. All right. This might sound really basic, Aubrey, but he basically said people don't feel heard. People don't feel seen. They don't feel understood. Mm. And that the way to break down this tribalism is, wait for it, get together with people outside your tribe. I love that. I Connect love that with line. people. I mean, when he said, I, you know, and then I just asked them, do you want to go grab a beer? Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who are more Baptist and stuff, go get a soda, go, go whatever get a else coffee. it might be. Yeah. Uh, for that to go do something relational like that, to go do something personal like that. Yeah takes away all the tribalism and now we can talk. I, I do appreciate yes. his idea here that this is about people being seen, being heard. I, you know, because I do think what can happen is when, okay, so the divide is there, then you divide into your tribes, then you begin like telling stories mm-hmm. about the other quote unquote tribe in a way that you're now vilifying them. Suddenly they're no longer your brother or sister in Christ. Suddenly they're no longer even image bearers of God. What breaks that down is breaking bread together, is mm. relationship, is yeah. just like you said, casually having a beer or a milkshake or whatever you feel comfortable <laughs> a having, milkshake. a glass of tea. Um, but the point is that those, when you're together, there's no longer room mm. for those stories to be like weaved in your mind. Like suddenly there's a real human being, flesh and blood in front of you that you're forced to confront. And that changes the whole dynamic. That yeah. changes your attitude. That changes even a little bit, I think, of your audacity to Mm. think poorly of someone who's sitting right in front of you. Because suddenly you're like, oh, wait, they're struggling with raising their teenage kids, too. Oh, wait, they're, you know, just hoping their wife makes it through her cancer journey, too. Oh, wait, we have the same pain about X, Y, Z. And you find, I think, even if you disagree on things, you have a commonality as human beings and as Christ followers that allows you to move forward even when you're different. That's good. Uh, and I would tell this, and I, I ask myself this question on a regular basis. Uh, if, if you look at your own life and there's nobody in it that, that, is, that believes differently than you, yeah. and I don't even mean believes like, yes, you want to have non-believers in your life, right. but I mean even underneath the umbrella of Christian, right? Like 
do I have friends that that maybe lean much more to the left mm-hmm. but are Christian? Do I have friends who, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. different race or different whatever else it might be? If if you look at your friends and the people you're surrounding yourself, and it's a very homogeneous in uh, in how they look, what they believe, yeah. what they do. Yeah. I think that leads to this sort of tribalism. And I think we need to kind of take David Brooks's words here to just say, hey, kind of reach across the aisle and say, hey, let's connect. Let me hear from you. Let me hear why you believe this. Let me not presume bad intentions on your part, but let me hear from you. That feels Mm -hmm. like it starts to bridge the divide. Does it not? Yeah, I I absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. And and I, I guess I, you know. To not be overly idealistic, you have to, one, be willing to go into those conversations. Two, you have to be willing to listen. Mm. And and I think there is a skill set of listening empathy that's missing, perhaps, too. So you cannot go into a conversation like that hot, on fire, that's ready good. to defend your not point. Not everything's a debate. Not everything's a debate. Like, start with literally that low-hanging fruit of getting a beer mm. and build a friendship. Tell me and, about your life. Yes. Yes. With no agenda beyond that. And then in time, if you have the safety of the rapport, you can begin tackling some of those things. But but let's also like with that meeting together, let's meet with an intention to listen, learn and actually just build rapport with somebody else. Well put. Hopefully we can begin to live that out. Grateful for the words of David Brooks there on Russell Moore's podcast. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm, and we are so thrilled to be joined by Dr. Andrew Farley. He is the best-selling author of nine books, including The Naked Gospel and Twisted Scripture, but we are thrilled to talk with Andrew about his brand new book, The Grace Message, Is the Gospel Really This Good? Andrew, thanks so much for being here with us today. Hey, thank you for having me today. Can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work a little bit about yourself and your ministry? Yeah, so I've been in ministry a couple of decades now, and uh, I'm just passionate about sharing the love and grace and forgiveness of God with believers and helping uh, deepen our understanding in, in of God's grace. Mm, that's awesome. And Andrew, you say... Uh, in this book, you say there's no greater message needed today than the message of God's grace. Like, that's what you're trying to get out there. Uh, how, as Christians, especially those of us who've been Christians for a long time, how do we lose the wonder of grace? How do we miss that message? Help us understand that a little bit. Yeah, well, I think the average person's uh, understanding of God's grace really comes down to mercy. I mean, mercy is when you're going 100 miles an hour down the street and the officer pulls you over and says, hey, I'm just going to give you a warning today, no ticket, and that's mercy. But if he pulls out a thousand bucks and gives it to you, Mm -hmm. that's grace. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, grace and mercy are a world apart. Uh, Grace is is bigger than just the concept of mercy. And so in this book, The Grace Message, I'm talking about how God is more than a, a banker who's canceled your debt, and he's more than a travel agent who's booked you for heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually given you a new heart by God's grace. Mm-hmm. And so we're equipped by grace, we're strengthened by grace, we're inspired by grace. And in the grace message, I'm saying, hey, it's grace from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds so good, Andrew. Um, 
So I, I know one of the things you write about in the book is how to abandon rule-based living and stop trying to measure up, which just feels like a message all of us need to hear <laughs> all the time. So can you unpack a little bit of that for our listeners? Yeah, I hear you. I mean, we, we grow up, uh, you work hard in school, you get good grades, you go to the workplace and you work hard and you're promoted. I mean, we are so used to this programming. It's all over our planet. And then we come to hear the gospel and we're saved and God turns everything upside down Mm. with his grace. And so, you know, on the moment to the very moment that you receive Christ, you're forgiven and blameless and holy and acceptable. And that never changes throughout the relationship. You can't ruin it. And we're not used to that. I mean, we're used to a performance system of trying, but mm-hmm. it, it's not really about trying. It's about trusting. It's not about what we're doing. It's about what Christ did for us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Andrew, uh, maybe you could speak of this from your own life or what you've seen in others as we're understanding grace more and more, like as we are actually kind of living in that, what kind of fruit comes in our lives? Help describe what does that life look like? Yeah, well, first let me say, when you look at the fruit of the Spirit, there's no way that that's happening under the law. I mean, under the law, you are under this system that creates stress and anxiety and fear. There's 600-plus regulations staring you in the face. You can Mm -hmm. never do it. Uh, James says if you keep the whole law and stumble in one point, you're Mm -hmm. guilty of all of it. Uh, So that's a stressful system that is not fruit-bearing. And so, you know, Paul says in Romans 7, he says, we died to the law so that we might bear fruit for God. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting because the fruit bearing can only happen under God's grace. Mm -hmm. And it's things like love and peace. And you look at the look at joy and gentleness. I mean, those things can't happen with a religious mindset. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those things can only happen when we're soaking in God's grace. Um, and Andrew, I know you also host a show called The Grace Message with Dr. Andrew Farley. It's every weeknight and Sunday afternoon on Sirius XM Satellite. Is this some of the messaging that you're talking about on that show? Yeah, so every night on The Grace Message radio program, we have live callers. You never know what you're going to get, <laughs> and that's why it's uh, so exciting. And yeah, we're we're taking the message of God's grace, the gospel, and we're applying it to people's problems. So somebody has an issue in their marriage, they have a struggle in their personal life, and, you know, we're saying, how does Jesus speak into that situation? So as you're listening to the grace message, it's like you're a fly on the wall, and you're tuning into this conversation, and I think it's many times more effective than a Sunday sermon. Mm. Uh, I give those too, but I think it's a, a beautiful thing to be able to apply God's grace to a a situation in someone's life. Yeah, that's really good. Right. Uh, and thinking about grace, Andrew, I want to ask this: Why do we have such a hard time, not just understanding it, but living in it and believing it? It feels like the longer a lot of us are Christians, the more we end up living like the Pharisees, trying to prove ourselves to God or whatever else it might be. Do you have any thoughts as to why we struggle so much with this concept of grace? Yeah, well, I think it's ingrained. I mean, the Scripture talks about something called the flesh, and I call that uh, stinking thinking or the programming, (laughs) you know, the programming that we had growing up. Uh, Right now, as I talk to you in the studio, I'm I'm looking at uh, this MacBook Pro uh, laptop that I have, and I got it a few years ago. 
Um, it, it was shiny and silver and new and beautiful. I was so excited. And I opened the box and within five minutes, it said, I need a software update. And I'm like, software update? I just bought this thing. <laughs> uh, but, but, but that shows you the difference between hardware and software. Yeah. And so uh, at Salvation, we get new hardware. We get new spiritual mm. hardware at the core of our being. But we do spend the rest of our lives getting those software updates, the renewing of the mind. And so I think that's what's going on. We have a predisposition in our thinking uh, toward achieving versus receiving. We're trying mm. to uh, get into trying versus trusting, and we we got to get reprogrammed, and that's what the renewing of the mind is all about. Mm. Mm. Oh, it's so good, Andrew. Uh, you know, I'm just thinking, Andrew, too, of our listeners right now who are hearing you talk about grace, but, you know, they're really hurting. Either it's been a been a long couple of years because of the pandemic or they're just struggling in their relationship with God or they feel like they are that person who does not understand grace. I wonder if you might shepherd that listener for just a minute and offer them a word of encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. I would say this. Sometimes we're obsessed with the size of our sins instead of being obsessed with the size of our Savior. And I think we have to go back and say, wait a minute, you know, the Bible was written by murderers. Mm. And I choose those words carefully because God did that on purpose. I mean, look at Moses, who wrote the first five books. He killed an Egyptian in rage. And then David, who wrote the Psalms, put a guy on the front lines of his army so that that guy would die and he could take that guy's wife. And then you've got Paul who wrote a a lot of New Testament letters more than anyone else. And he was killing Christians. So, you know, I I ask people, how big are your sins? Who who have you murdered lately? Uh, Maybe, maybe, maybe our, our sins are small and our God is big and he has qualified us through Jesus. Mm, Okay. Andrew, I love the question you asked right on the cover of your book. It's called The Grace Message, and it says, is the gospel really this good? Uh, As we close, uh, and we're grateful for the amount of time you've spent with us, help people understand that not only is the question of that yes, but talk about how good the gospel really is. Mm. Yeah, so there's no fly in the ointment. Mm. There's no worm in the apple. There's nothing to ruin it. I mean, God's grace, the gospel message itself is everything you ever imagined it could be, and then some. I, I think we we have expected more, and yet we haven't known how to enjoy it. So in this book, The Grace Message, I'm helping people see the fullness of the gospel, the forgiveness of God. If you've ever wondered, you know, am I forgiven? What about this sin? What about that sin? What about the the frequent struggle that I have, Mm -hmm. you know, the book addresses the total forgiveness of the believer. And then how does God's grace really work? I mean, am I, am I under grace all the time? And how does that result in godliness anyway? Well, all of this is in the grace message. And I just want to encourage people that God loves you. God likes you. Mm -hmm. He delights in you. He dances over you. Mm -hmm. He celebrates you. And If you're not experiencing that, again, it comes back to time and truth. And just, uh, you know, this this book, The Grace Message, is designed to encourage people in the truth that really will 
set them free. Amen. Oh, amen. That sounds so fantastic, Dr. Farley. Dr. Andrew Farley is the host of The Grace Message and the author of the new book, The Grace Message. Is the gospel really this good? You can learn more about Andrew and his book at andrewfarley.org and connect with him on Twitter at Dr. Andrew Farley. Andrew, thanks so much for being thanks, here with Andrew. us today. Hey, thank you for having me. It was fun. Mm-hmm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so thrilled that you're with us today. Brian, a friend of mine, Marlena Graves, she said something that I thought was very interesting. She was talking about Christian authors, but she said she sees this in churches, too. And I wanted us to talk about branding Mm -hmm. and Christians, Mm -hmm. okay? Here's what she says. My life is not a commodity to be sold as a brand, Mm. but it's not just Christian authors who feel compelled to bow down to the capitalistic branding. Churches do too. I have heard a billion times that one church cannot participate in a good deed with churches not of their denomination, she went on to say, because that would not help build their brand. brand. So, uh, Brian, I don't know if you feel this as a pastor, as a church leader, certainly as an author, there is a sense in which I need to be careful about, does this fit with my quote unquote brand? Does this not fit with my brand? And I'm a small time author, right? So I feel that on a very, very small scale. I know bigger authors probably feel that on a much larger scale. But this is interesting what Marlena brings up, that some churches might feel some Mm -hmm, of this mm -hmm. uh, sort of commodifying pressure. What do you think about that? I think it's right on because here's what we do. Hey, what are the cool churches doing right now? Or what are the the big churches doing right now? And then we start going, not what has God called my church to be? Not what are the what is the strengths of my church Mm. or whatever else it may be. But instead, what, what what's the cool thing we can do? And we start making decisions through that prism. Here's the real danger of this conversation about brand when it comes to church, in my opinion. Uh, you start to, um, it, it becomes less about uh, what's the what's the people going to see when they see us. That's part of it. Yep. Like, what's the image that I'm yep. portraying? Jesus had a lot of very strong things to say about image control. Yep. But here's what else. Here's the insidious part of this, Aubrey, is that I start treating you. Let's pretend you're just a church member at my church. Okay. I no longer see you as a sheep in my church to be loved and cared for and discipled in this that I instead see you as a means to an end. I wow. see you as somebody who has been put in my church to help further our brand, further wow. my mission, wow. further our whatever. Yeah. And end up inevitably you end up getting burned out, you leave yeah. my church and yeah. I go to the next person. How is this person going to be for? Mm. So you might think what's the big deal here? If it's ever about the church, yeah. And not about the people. Yeah. Uh, I think you start to get this sort of thing. So two things for me, right? and I think I'd love to hear you on both of them, mm-hmm. is one, the issue is we become image managers. Like, yes. what do people see when they yeah. look at Four Corners Community Church? Yeah. And by connection, what do they see when they look at me? Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I'm going to make sure my people are kind of fitting that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gonna, it could feel really fake. And two, uh, it kind of ends up using people. I think you end up using totally. people instead of the church being for the people, the people end up being for the brand mm. of the church, which is really just a, a hidden way of saying it becomes all about the pastor and the leader and their glory. And, so. and, and goes back to this whole conversation about celebrity culture, right? Because even if you're 
even if it's a small church and you're doing that, what you're trying to do is build your own name and your own brand and your mm-hmm. own quote unquote mm-hmm. celebrity on whatever scale you can. I do think, Brian, this is an interesting conversation going back to something we've talked about in the past, but like, what is the role of the pastor? Yeah. Is the role of the pastor, like you said, a shepherd to lead and care for and die for the sheep? Or is the role of a pastor a business manager? Is a, a brand manager, mm-hmm. a marketing manager? And we seem to have, over the past several decades, I think gotten twisted in what the pastor's role biblically is actually supposed to be. Because it feels like unless you're branding, marketing, sharing promoting you're missing you're missing you're not doing a good job your church won't grow people aren't going to look at you and be impressed but that really is antithetical to what both paul and jesus himself would have said about pastors Mm -hmm. don't you think oh absolutely I, i this is something i've spent a lot of time thinking about and you and i have talked a lot about this is what is the role of the pastor in our day today yeah right because So often, Aubrey, it is, it's insidious. You're like, well, my church is supposed to be this. I want our church to be the hot church, to be the growing church, to be this. And we've lost kind of the idea of the pastor as shepherd Mm. and the pastor as the one who, like you said, lays down their life for the sheep, the one who does uh, leave the 99 for the one. When you're trying to build your brand or build your image or whatever else as a pastor, as a church, you know what a big waste of time is? Leaving the 99 for the one. Right, right. It's let that one go and go find another 99 mm. and another 99 after that. And mm. the math begins to be like, hey, I'll take 99 over one. Mm. Jesus said, the good shepherd said, we go for the one. Yeah, that's that's right. our calling. And that's so I right. do, I I think this idea, like it's bigger than brand for me. This idea of every church is supposed to be growing. Every church is supposed to be dynamic. Every yeah. church is supposed to be this or that. I'm not sure it's biblical yeah. and that what ends up being left in the wake is not just people, but also pastors who aren't wired to do that totally and be that. And they start to feel like a failure when in reality they Mm -hmm. might be living more biblically pastor, what what the biblical pastor looks like than this one. But there's something we've gotten Mm. something wrong in the church world. So you you need it. You you got a whole there's I need to keep talking to you about this. You got some good fire in you about this. I think so. So let me ask you a question then, Brian, for our we have a lot of pastors that listen, a lot of ministry leaders that listen. What's. I guess for that pastor who I I want to talk to the pastor who feels like they can't measure up to that quote unquote brand and, and then they're questioning their call because Mm -hmm. of it. Do you have a word of encouragement for them? I mean, I don't want to put you on a spot, but I do because I I can tell this is a passion area of yours. Uh, You know, this, uh, you and I have had this talk off air many times. I have felt that. So if, if that's you, I want you to know, I have felt that. And, Maybe it's not even fair to speak of that in the past tense, mm, right? I feel that. Well, you yeah. started, you and I have both started churches, right? And mm-hmm. what you feel like when you start a church, you go to a conference, the people on the stage, they have huge churches that are saving, you know, they're baptizing a hundred people every Easter. And you're like, that's what I'm supposed to yeah. be. And yeah. you end up, your church ends up being 150 people and, yeah. the, and you, you inevitably feel like a failure. And then you open up your Bible and you're like, I don't think I'm a failure, but everyone else is looking at me this way. I, yeah. I think this is a huge problem. I yeah. think more than the pandemic, Aubrey, more than anything else, I think this is why pastors are quitting. Mm. Because they're like, I got into this to love people and this, mm. that, but everyone just keeps asking me how big's your church and what's your vision and what's this. And that's nothing wrong with that. There's people that are called to that. Sure. But I do, and you hear it, the number of small church pastors who are just diving right now is is really hard. And I think this gets at it. It's 
it's this idea of be bigger, be bigger, be flashier, yeah. be this. And you're just like, I, I can't keep up because I can't do that. I, I mm. So if that's you out there, uh, don't believe the lie is what Amen. I would tell you. Don't believe Amen. the lie. Gotta write a book about this, Brian. Sure, I'm like gonna I have, could just you sit can here, be my ghost I could just sit here and listen to you <laughs> preach on this. I think you're right. Don't believe the lie, and I think rem- remember that God sees you and yes. God knows. And if you are a, a shepherd after His heart, that's ultimately the mm. reward. That's yep, the yep. thing that we're after. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from four to six p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.